Hi everyone, welcome to episode 5, Made in Kosovo. This podcast has been sharing your stories of lockdown since the start of April and I have many more to share with you in the coming weeks, regardless if we're still in lockdown or not. This week I wanted to tell you my story and why I started this podcast. A few listeners wrote to me and suggested that it would be good to hear my side of things. Uh, I'll be honest, I find it really hard to talk about myself. Um, I think a lot of us do on some level. A part of me just doesn't like to talk about me too much. Maybe I'm worried I'll give the wrong impression, or at worst, I'll bore someone to death. So a little warning for anyone listening. Yes, this entire episode is just me talking about me so that you know what you're getting yourself into. I suppose I put this episode off for so long because I'm not sure what I am comfortable sharing about myself, what I would like out there in the ether. It's funny because I think we can all appreciate openness in others. So it's a bit strange that we find it so difficult um, to expect the same from ourselves. The episode title is a bit of a giveaway in terms of what um, I'll be discussing with you today. I'll cover my origins, so where I'm from, where I grew up, and what lockdown has meant for me so far. I come from Kosovo, a country once famous for one of the most recent conflicts in Europe. For those that don't know or understand the region, Kosovo is a country occupied in the majority by Albanians, which is what I am, as well as many other ethnic groups uh, compromising of Serbs, Roma and many, many others. And for those that don't know, um, Albanian is an ethnicity and a language with distinct dialects and different religions um, compromising of mainly Catholics and Muslims. I'm going into this because it's a question I get asked quite often, what is the difference between the two? So um, Albanians have occupied land in southeastern Europe for centuries. We were under the rule of many empires, Illyrian, Roman, Ottoman, you name it. And it kind of explains why there are so many different religions and languages spoken in the area and why it's sort of difficult to pin down where someone who is Albanian is actually from. And the history student in me really can't resist delving into the history side of things. But I think it's really important. And hopefully as the episode goes on, it will make more sense to you why I'm going into this. So as promised, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson. After World War II, empires that were already in the midst or on brink of collapsing collapsed. Country lines were drawn, um, creating modern-day nation-states, so France, Germany, the countries as we know them today. What did this mean for Albania? Well, it achieved in separating ethnic Albanians into many different countries and totally messing with our psyche in terms of what it meant to be Albanian. The majority of these peoples remained in what is known today as modern-day Albania. Some, like me and my ancestors, ended up in Kosovo, or Yugoslavia as it was known back in the day. Don't worry, we won't go there this episode. 
I understand that the region, the Balkan region, is already complicated enough as it is, and I don't want to overwhelm anyone that's listening. My point is, the Albanian diaspora is wide. There are Albanians all over the world who migrated away from the area at different points in time. There were some that left during World War I, during World War II, and there were some that left as recently as the 90s. The Kosovo-Albanian community in London is also vast and concentrated in pockets of the city. I moved around a lot, mainly in North and Northwest London. I spent most of my secondary school years in Swiss Cottage, basically Little Kosovo to those who are familiar with the area. This was a community with deep social bonds, some made before the war and carried over, and others born from the circumstances of just being in a foreign country, unable to return to what you all know. And so for many years, my family in particular found a lot of support from the community, the community being other Kosovo Albanians in London. My parents were really keen for me to have Kosovan friends, to watch Kosovan news and to speak Albanian at home. I basically didn't go south of the river until I left university. You just didn't leave northwest London or little Kosovo, unless there were other Kosovans to visit. We stick together, always. One thing that's um, really important to note is that um, the way we've, we, have, we as Albanians have learned our histories is mainly through oral histories told and retold and passed down from generation to generation. And that's really important when uh, considering why we stick together and why that's so important to us to maintain those social ties. The literacy rate was very low in Albanian communities across Southeast Europe until after World War II, with only a privileged few in urban areas having access to education and schooling. My dad in particular came from a family where both his parents had no education. His mother, my grandmother, one of the most astute and sharp-minded women in our lives, was actually illiterate, and so were many of her peers that came from rural areas. When I was writing my dissertation on Kosovo, I, um, I found it really difficult to find written sources. I almost gave up on the topic until I realised how much of our history is oral. I began to remember all the stories I'd heard from uncles, aunts, my parents, all personal histories that really sounded like they could be from any other Kosovan family. And if you fast forward to today, you know, the penny is sort of dropped for me. This podcast, this podcast is basically an oral history. It's my oral history. It's my family's oral history. It's, it's my heritage. It's also a bit like my diary. Um, my journal of contemporary life that I've opened up to the people in my life and beyond, even those listening now. Although I know what major change, upheaval and sacrifice feels like, and those are very big words, (laughs) I haven't ever experienced a global pandemic. Definitely a first for all of us. It's a story worth recording and it's an oral history worth listening to again one day. Back to the present moment, Um, I'd already triggered a lot of change in my life before coronavirus. I really didn't need more change, Um, especially change that I couldn't control and I can be the world's biggest control freak. 
I'd just left my job after almost five years, which meant closing a chapter of my life permanently and sidestepping into a new career. And this move would come with its own question marks. Um, I had also decided at the same time to move out of my house share and get my own place in an area of London that I could afford, which is a small net and that I really liked, which is a wider net. Ironically, I also picked it because of the commute to work. Um, and now I'm just thinking whether I should move into a tree house with Wi-Fi, as it doesn't seem to matter where you are these days, you can do your job remotely. I had two weeks in between leaving my old job and starting my new one. I was sat in my new living room, having moved in a day before lockdown was announced, looking around at my scattered belongings, thinking, oh, what have I done? <laughs> I'd planned to visit Sri Lanka before starting my job, um, but instead I spent two weeks learning how to stay still and quiet in my mind, um, which moves at 200 miles per hour on a good day, by the way. And yeah, I just, I was kind of lost for what to do. So I just started walking around um, the area. I moved to South London and um, I just began to walk around South, South East London, just observing my new surroundings, um, taking in the people, the buildings, the clothes shops, which was a bit sad, very sad and the lovely parks filled with people kind of probably having the same sort of idea as me and then at the end of the day coming back to my own flat feeling feeling good if i'm honest feeling very lucky and grateful to have a roof over my head and a job that was supporting me and also felt very grateful for all the free time I had on my hands. I mean, I may not have known how to use it, but for the first time in a long time, I had no commitments and no pressures that were work-related or even socially-related pressures. I mean, I was in such good spirits that even when I began to display coronavirus symptoms, I was still loving life. <laughs> I was really enjoying my alone time. Um, I felt like things were moving in the direction I'd wanted them to move in for quite some time. And then the novelty began to wear off, possibly this week. Um, I think we're in day 36. It's the day that I'm recording this episode. Day, day 36 of lockdown, the beginning of May, and it's my birthday in May. So I've been thinking about how much time has passed without seeing my friends and family and I, I didn't really think about that so much until I realised it was my birthday this, this month and whether I started wondering whether I would spend my birthday alone in lockdown and how would I feel about that and my new job had started at this point and the work was starting to really ramp up and you've got to bear in mind this stuff is new to me this is a sidestep in my career totally new colleagues new working environment, new way of doing things, new processes, new software, just new, everything's new. Um, and the work ramping up 
just made me sort of notice the negatives more than I had done so at the start of lockdown. I still felt really grateful that I had a job, but it was more negative feelings towards the lockdown itself. Um, I began to avoid uh, virtual socials with friends. I was feeling quite drained from being emotionally switched on all week at work. And I was actually, thing is, I'm actually quite enjoying my work, but it was more frustration at not finding time to do the things I really enjoyed doing, such as cooking and my yoga. I started to feel a familiar sinking feeling this week in particular, a feeling I thought I'd kind of moved away from. So back in 2018, I was the unhealthiest I'd ever been, and that's in mind, body and soul. I've made some big decisions that changed the course of my life. Uh, my way of coping with, with this was to throw myself into intense exercise instead of sitting with my feelings. I was no stranger to heavy lifting in the gym, but I began to combine this with running and Pilates. And this is all under no professional guidance because I just thought I knew it all. I've been doing it for years. Why would I need professional help? Then came my injury. So age 25, I had a herniated disc, which was just ridiculous trying to explain to people at work why or how I'd managed to injure myself. And this was really just from carrying so much tension in my body and not exercising properly. I was essentially bedridden for a while. My sister had to help me out of bed for the first few days. And for someone like me who also um, doesn't stop, can't sit still on most days, it was really hard to accept that I had to slow down and take a few steps back. I mean, at that point it was difficult to take any steps, but yeah, it was, it was made, it was compounded by the fact that I'd also moved back home at this point in my life, which I found very tough after years of living independently um, for university and work. And, you know, we all love our families, but I think it's one thing living with them after um, having moved out and experiencing that level of independence that you do it just can feel like you're taking 10 steps back. And I, I think that was another pressure on me to do something, take action, um, to take my life back on track as I saw it then. In some ways, the time I spent alone recovering um, and thinking had its negatives and positives. I did begin to make changes, um, like moving out into a house share which was really the first thing I changed. Um, I'd also dramatically cut down my consumption of alcohol. Um, I went months without drinking. I changed my diet from having a steak three times a week to becoming totally vegan. And I went from lifting heavy weights in the gym to exploring different forms of exercise, um, boxing and then yoga. And I began to question my outlook on what treating myself meant for me. So I began to invest more in myself um, by enlisting professional trainers, specialising in back pain, osteopaths and others to help kind of guide me back to fitness. So for so long, I had equated thinness and muscle building with fitness and wellness. And it's just, it was, it was just not a healthy place for my mind to be in. But these changes felt good, I won't lie. It felt good to lose weight and fit into much smaller clothes. 
it felt great to see improvements in my exercise. Most of all, uh, it was actually a lot of the external validation I got from others, uh, especially family members, which sort of encouraged me even more. However, I didn't realise at the time, um, but I was slowly feeding my worst enemy. My worst enemy being my own inner critic. So this concept of an inner critic is basically like a voice or a feeling. It's quite intrusive and it makes you, it undermines you in your most vulnerable moments. Um, Any small insecurity, it feeds off that. And if you don't know how to control that inner critic, then yeah, it is very long for you. Uh, They say you should name your inner critic to distinguish yourself from them. So, you know, it's not you that's being negative, it's your inner critic. I haven't named my inner critic, but I'll tell you what it feels like for me. Um, And I hope you, I hope this example, this analogy makes sense. Um, But every time I hear her voice, it is a female voice. It feels like an unexpected and unwanted phone call that I have no choice but to take. It's a compulsion to answer that call. It starts off fuzzy and distant, but the message is always loud and clear. The feelings it evokes within me, so familiar. How embarrassing. You really shouldn't have said that. What will they think about you now? I'll tell you a story about my inner critic so you can get to know her a little bit better. So I mentioned that I I do like to do yoga and that's sort of a fairly recent thing for me. My first hot yoga session was on a cold January evening. So hot yoga is where they heat the temperature of the room, essentially. It's quite you'd think it'd be quite self-explanatory but I always get asked what is it so it's not like Bikram yoga for anyone that's watched that Netflix documentary and if you haven't watched it watch it but it's a similar kind of thing Uh, so you're very sweaty it's very warm and it's like the perfect thing to do on a cold January evening so my first session I was um, really unsure about the experience and the session I think was at something like 8pm in the evening and I just I would have much rather have been in bed at that time and on my way there, um, I began to hear that familiar sound again. Who do you think you are going to yoga? I had a perception of it as a middle class and elitist pursuit. So I was already battling with my inner critic on my way there. Um, when I get there, there were loads of people waiting to go inside the class outside. Um, and they all seemed to know each other and... I had proper new girl at school feelings going on, which just wasn't helping the state I was in. Um, The next thing I knew, I was inside a hot room, busy, busy room with tons of other people. And as someone who liked their personal space before the term social distancing was coined, I was slowly panicking at this point. Um, I really wasn't sure about what I was doing. And then I hear an external voice the teacher's voice. She says, we're going to focus on our breathing. And I think my inner critic was really lapping this up. Breathing? Really? 
What are you going to get from this? Is breathing really going to get you the gains you need? I had to really push back against this voice. And I gave it a go. Um, it was really difficult at first. I kept getting really distracted. The deeper I was inhaling and exhaling, the more it muffled the voice of my inner critic until it completely dulled and became inaudible. And I don't remember the point in which I couldn't hear it anymore. But all I knew was for the first time going to something new, I didn't know what I wanted or what I expected. And that was something that made me uncomfortable. It made my inner critic uncomfortable. Because there was then nothing to, there was no failure or win. When there's no expectation, there's no expectation dashed. And as the class came to an end, I had completely silenced this inner critic. And I walked home really surprised. So I walked home in a freezing and quiet days, I'd say. Um, I didn't really take it in. It's almost like I floated home. I didn't really take it in until I, I, I went back to my flat and I sort of looked at myself in the mirror and I was really, oh, looked really hot and sweaty and I felt just really calm. I didn't feel tired, I felt very energized. The next day I knew I needed to feel that again because I hadn't felt that in so long. And it wasn't like a new feeling, it was just an absence of a bad feeling. Nonetheless, I, um, I really began to look forward to every single class. It was the one time where I could be with my thoughts and be in the moment. And, it's, and being in the moment is something I really struggle with. Um, it's something my inner critic would label as pure indulgence, laziness and idleness. After months of doing yoga, um, the calls from my inner critic didn't stop overnight and they didn't stop at all to be honest um, however they were just faint ringing sounds by this point which I could easily ignore I'd become a person totally fixated on outcomes and in some ways I still am it's, it's something I think we struggle with as a society um, it's something that I am slowly having to unlearn um, the yoga was just an example of something that made me begin to see my life slightly differently and to treat myself with a little or a lot more compassion. And then there was coronavirus. Fast forward once more to today, day 36 of the lockdown, and my inner critic is slowly creeping up on me again. I fought it off by cooking myself lovely meals, indulging in self-care activities, just little distractions. Um, but at this point, I think, having spent so much time just sitting with myself, all my endless pursuits, whether that was yoga, you know, face masks, making some food, baking something, it felt very hollow. And these were things that I used to bring me joy and make me feel fulfilled. And I realized that as much as I was mourning for all the things I could no longer do, all the people I couldn't see. I was also mourning for the person that even wanted those things in the first place. I can't explain it to you, but I feel so different from the day that we went into lockdown to now. And maybe some of you listening also feel the same.
but for me it felt like and it feels like I was going through or I'm going through a, a breakup a breakup with the person I used to be I've been thinking a lot about what I really want and also what I need and it's only recently I've made that distinction because we may want many things but they may not be aligned to what our needs are not being able to mindlessly tap my contactless card um, when I'm out and about has made me question those things I deemed as necessities to get me through the day most recently and probably the hardest thing of all is I've really begun to assess all my relationships with those in my life past and current um, I went through the corona coaster wave of emotions. I, you know, I was grateful one minute, I was angry and sad the next, and I was happy the next day. But most distinctly, I was very present. I was living life day by day. And for once, I didn't need to plan anything. But those plans were my distractions. So when I was feeling low in normal life, my plans got me through my day. And without those, I just had to sit and process everything from the moment I was born to today. On the bright side, my work on the podcast was keeping me busy outside of work hours. And I was really connecting with people on a deeper level, receiving messages from those um, for whom some of the topics covered so far have really resonated. Um, And I think as things got busier for me, I found the usually rational side of my brain judging me again. Um, those, Those horrible inner critic type discussions were going on in my head like oh you went from doing yoga almost every day to only three times a week what happened to you you know you fell off then that familiar ring again and the hardest part I couldn't help or control my feelings I had no distractions I just had to sit with them I'm sitting with them currently And all I'm doing right now is hoping that sharing them with you through this podcast will help. In the last week, I felt tenser physically, short-fused and frustrated, if I'm honest. My phone in particular started becoming a real source of irritation for me, a burden. I don't like being near it, but I also feel like I rely on it so much right now. Um, And that's to communicate with those I love, um, friends, family work so the other day I received a message from my aunt um, and we've been sharing we've been talking all of us I'm sure like everyone else and I I come from quite a big family um, and I have so many group chats uh, to keep track of and I thought it was just going to be another message another another meme um, another photo of us when we were five years old because all everyone's doing right now is just rooting through all their baby pictures um but this time it was actually a video of me as a baby in 93 having just been woken up and being cradled by my mum um sitting on her lap uh now this is going to sound really strange but it was the first time i'd seen a video of myself as a baby um yeah we didn't really know anyone with a video recorder um I think my aunt had come back from the Ukraine at that point, so she had a fancy recorder. I mean, even my baby photos were very poor quality. I look as though I was born in the 1960s. Um, So anyway, in this video, um, I see my mum, you know, she's 26 in the video, which is a year younger than I am today. And 
she looks so happy and, and settled. And I see people around her, um, an established way of life, conversations in the background. And those conversations in the background are making references to people like my grandfather, who I was close to and who I missed out on seeing before he passed away. Um, I saw a short 30 second glimpse of a life my parents risked by leaving Kosovo and embarking on a spiritual lockdown. And essentially embarking on a spiritual lockdown in a land where they had to start again, where their jobs, qualifications, social ties didn't matter. Sound familiar? So let's go back a bit and specifically to 1993. In 1993, um, my dad was training to be a dentist. I spent a lot of time with him in my early years. My dad was always very academic, um, only one of seven children to finish high school and attend university. We spent our time together learning Albanian poems as the years went on, uh, which I would then dutifully recite for the extended family. And my mum, she was an English teacher working at the local secondary school in my town. I was their first child, but I was also the first grandchild on my mum's side. I was totally spoiled. Um, when my dad was studying, I spent time in my grandmother's garden helping her kill chickens, and this is before my veganism, and making Ivard, jam, and Kosovan pastries. And it's probably this is probably where my love of food comes from. But I recall my grandma giving me a chunk of dough to play with and how seriously I, I, I took it. Um, and a huge part of me still wants to return to that life. Minus the killing of chickens. And that's because, and that's really because my fondest memories are centered around that house, my grandparents' house. I remember that my grandfather built a swing for me on the cherry tree outside. And I played chess with him when he was home from work. Um, disclaimer to anyone listening who would eventually like to challenge me to chess. I actually have no idea how to play anymore. But my um, my grandfather wore many hats. Uh, he was a solicitor in profession. But he was also an important and very serious man. He was once head of the town's university and hospital at different points. And if it sounds like I'm bragging, it's because I am. I'm very proud of him. Um, he was very well respected and admired, but he was also so kind and compassionate. And that's the thing I'm proud of the most. In that large garden, that house, that's where I learned what love meant for me. You know, I was listened to, respected, treated with care and compassion, uh, which turned me into the world's chattiest toddler. I spent most of my early years surrounded by adults who spoke to me like I was an adult. So I think a part of me always thought I was an adult and that's why I didn't really quite understand when um, I'd be forced to play with other children and they just were not on my level. So I grew up with lots of attention, love and stability. And it sounds idyllic. That's because it was. But now it feels like a dream that I just can't recall in totality. Sometimes when I go back to visit, I find myself standing on the steps of the back gate and just staring at the garden itself, trying desperately to bring back those memories and the warm feelings associated with it. The bird songs in the background, the smell of burning wood, amongst other things. 
Life changed dramatically for us and many others in Kosovo in the late 90s. Um, many families made the decision to leave Kosovo for Germany, Switzerland and the UK. My family made the choice to leave, if you can call it a choice. Milosevic had risen to power at that point and uh, Yugoslavia was falling apart. The memories of what happened in Bosnia were totally fixed in people's minds. Most Albanians lost their jobs. My mum, like many other unpaid teachers, began to teach her students in secret at home. You know, she was risking imprisonment or worse, disappearance for doing that. Um, but it was a cause that everyone believed in. However, I think they decided amongst themselves, my parents, that this was just not a sustainable way of life for their two kids. Um, at this point, my younger brother had been born. Um, so together with um, my two-year-old brother and my parents, we, we made the journey to London in September 97. My aunt and husband were already living in London, so we were planning to stay with them. I recall very vividly um, the dim lights of the plane uh, once we were on it and the really nice treatment from the stewardesses on our flights. I remember really looking forward to going to the UK. I was very excited. It felt like a big adventure and my perception of the country was really romanticised. I thought of kings, queens and Princess Diana. These are all things that I'd read in books or seen in films. Uh, surely enough, the excitement of being on a plane for the first time wore off. Uh, my brother had a really high temperature and fever, so we had to be quarantined and checked for illnesses, along with the other Kosovans on our flight. I remember waiting a long time, worried about my baby brother, and finding it really strange as I watched my dad dip his fingers into some dark blue ink and then press it on official documentation. The friendly stewardesses were gone and now there were just locked doors and scary officials who were probably just doing their jobs but nonetheless terrified me. I really started to wonder whether we had done something wrong. Um, that feeling began to grow when we moved into our temporary accommodation in Edmonton, London. And as time wore on, I began to realise that this was no longer an adventure and that home as I knew it was something far away from here. And um, I found myself withdrawing and spending time alone with no neighbourhood kids to play with like I did back home. I miss my family in Kosovo a lot. I started to forget what their faces looked like and their fleeting voices on the other side of the phone were one of the few things I had to remember them by. And even those were not frequent enough. It's not like today where you can just zoom your grandma. That sounds awful. <laughs> but you can FaceTime your grandma, you can make contact quite easily. I don't want to think about what zooming your grandmother actually looked like. Um, but yeah, even so, the telephone calls stopped one day. I learned later that Serbian forces um, had taken down phone lines in Kosovo as part of their tactics. The only information we had about what was going on was via international news channels. And the lack of contact with those back home meant my parents became more isolated, which in turn meant that I became more isolated. 
there's only so much you can say to a two-year-old when you're five. But um, yeah, I, I spent a lot of my time alone. I was reading whatever I found in the house, uh, books, newspapers, leaflets, the back of a toy box. Um, I was playing games in my head with imaginary characters I'd invented. Uh, maybe going a little bit crazy. What happened to me here was within months, I went from a very performative chatterbox who couldn't be stopped to a very closed and secretive book withdrawn and introspective which is not how you would ever characterize a five-year-old as crazy as it might sound asylum seekers are unable to work in the uk whilst they await the outcome of their legal status yeah so our family was totally reliant on my aunt and charitable organizations to survive I remember how embarrassing I found it when volunteers from charities would turn up to give us food in black bin bags. I couldn't look at Rice Krispies the same ever again. <laughs> but we were so lucky, however, um, relatively speaking. We had my aunt and her husband looking out for us and we also had our community, which was growing as the conflict was getting worse in Kosovo. I mentioned in episode three with Mo, um, that I have a lot of memories visiting family friends in bedsits where the shower, kitchen and bedroom were basically your entire room. And that's for a family of four. A lot of my family friends were housed in bedsits and I spent a lot of time in them myself. And for those of us child asylum seekers who could remember our stable lives in Kosovo, what we were experiencing in the UK as asylum seekers was in a way a tremendous loss. However, you can't really articulate these things as a child. You just move on. I'd like to tell you more about my asylum journey one day, but I think I'm still processing it. Um, if anything, I hadn't really processed it since the lockdown started. And I know that may sound really odd to you, or maybe you can relate to it directly. Or perhaps there's something else in your life you're still working through, a different kind of loss. I'm partially sharing my experience because it's something I don't really talk about with my Cosman friends. I think we all grew up accepting our histories as normal because we all experienced them. That means it's normal, right? But the history and the experience I've described to you has made me the person I am today. It made me toughen up sooner than I needed to, but it also made me really defensive at times, protective over what I'd built, my family in particular. However, along the way, at some point in my life, I forgot who I was and where I came from, despite everything I'd been through. And that breakup I mentioned to you earlier, it's not a breakup from my history. I'm not moving away from it or embarrassed of it. I am turning back to it, really. The real breakup is between me and the part of me that tried to suppress such an integral part of myself. And it was only a matter of time before I had to stop running from me. And there is so much I want to share with you, but we would be here all day and all night. And I should probably save some of the good stuff for later on. I've been speaking to a lot of people who are contributing to this crisis in great ways. That feels good. That a message I'm putting out there is helping people feel less alone in their anxiety. And that the opportunity for my guests to share their stories is helping them. I feel really honoured and really grateful that so many people want to share their stories with me. Um, the other day I thought about my journal, which I've kept for over five years. I don't write in it often, um, 
maybe twice a month at the most. But I was flicking through the pages where I'd written about lockdown and the coronavirus. Um, uh, I, I imagined future generations reading about this time and how interesting they would find even our most mundane moments. I hope this podcast helps shed a light on those strange times. And I'll keep it going for as long as you all have something to share with me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my story. I hope you took away something that resonated with you, no matter how small. And if you'd like to be on an episode of Stay Home with me, uh, please get in touch with me directly via Instagram uh, or Twitter. And the handle is at Stay At Home Podcast. And it's the same for both accounts. I'm looking to hear from people who have experience um, working directly on the front line at the moment, but also just people who are experiencing the lockdown, um, living life day by day, taking it as it comes, who are affected by the lockdown in unusual or um, just ordinary ways. So essentially, what have you missed? Who do you miss? What would you be doing right now if it wasn't for coronavirus? What was your life like before coronavirus? What's it bringing up for you? And everything in between.